Mark chapter 9 and verse 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and leadeth them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not, he knew not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why, why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And he, that's Jesus, answered and told them, Elijah verily cometh first and restoreth all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught? But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, whatever they wanted, as it is written of him. Well, You might remember that we recently heard from Peter an important confession. A confession is acknowledgement that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And that was one element in the this uh, revealing, this gradual unveiling of the kingdom of God. You'll, you might remember that straight after that, Jesus starts talking about his suffering and death. And today, with this even greater event, we see Jesus in the same way, immediately following it up with talk of his death and resurrection. So there's a bit of a parallel there. Because the disciples needed to understand the centrality of the cross of Calvary in the work of the Messiah. In the episode we've considered today, Jesus takes three of his disciples with him up a mountain. And this wouldn't be the first time that Jesus has chosen uh, Peter, James and John and left the others behind. Uh, on, on one occasion it was those three plus Andrew. And we can, we can only guess why Jesus singled out those th three or four out of the twelve. But it would be fair to say that these were his sort of inner circle. It was interesting that Pete, Peter um, Peter mentions the transfiguration that, that he witnessed in one of his letters. In Second uh, Peter, Second um, Peter uh, chapter one and verse uh, eighteen, it says. 
For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when there came uh, such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. It must have been must have been a real blessing for, for Peter to be able to recall such a, a great event seeing Jesus in this uh, this glory light of his well Jesus uh, goes up a mountain again and mountains uh, feature uh, quite uh, prominently throughout scripture and they're often associated with some kind of revelation from God. Now we we note that uh, Luke included this detail that there was a, a six a six day period before they went uh, up the mountain. It's interesting that the six days is one of the elements in uh, Moses's uh, meeting with God on Sinai. You have a look in Exodus twenty four. Exodus 24, it says, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, note, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So in both accounts we have a high mountain, a six-day period, and a revealing from God. Well, this... This transfiguration, the word just means changed. He, he was changed. Jesus' face changed from being normal to this shining sort of whiteness. And that again uh, reminds us of something from what happened with Moses uh, on the mountain uh, in Exodus 34 this time. Exodus 34 oops, says... Uh, and it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony uh, in Moses' hand. Uh, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wished not, he knew not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were, they were afraid to come near to him. We're used to uh, we're used to telling people not to, to, to s you've heard Jesus say um, don't you know when he does a miracle or a healing don't don't tell anyone keep keep it keep it quiet and we've I suppose we've all thought that was uh, not what we'd expect we, 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 we I suppose we'd expect Jesus to be saying right now I've done this go out and, and tell everyone who I am but it was about timing, wasn't it? Now he does he does warn the disciples here to not say anything, but there's a difference here. There's a condition attached to it. He tells them, Don't say anything until until he rises from the dead. So he does want his words and his works broadcast when he's gone. But why not now? 
Well, it's likely that because because the transfiguration was really such a dramatic exhibition of Jesus's divinity, it it, it could have really sparked a, a, a massive uprising of the Jews who thought the Messiah is here. It's time to it's time to fight. It's time to kick off. Maybe that's what it was. This transfiguration was it was curious and wonderful, and it was also unique. It tells us a lot, and it also creates just as many questions. Was this a vision? Uh, if it, if not, how could these two men who, who were dead just be there at all? How on earth did the disciples recognise them? There's another one. One commentator gives his opinion on it. He says... Luke also says the disciples awoke from sleep. That's in Luke chapter 9. Was the rest of the story some visionary and auditory perception given by God and shared by all three, sparked off by the real change in Jesus' appearance on the one hand uh, and leading to Peter's understandable but inappropriate down-to-earth suggestion on the other? The truth is we, we cannot know what happened uh, apart from these accounts. But that's okay because we need to see the meaning of the transfiguration rather than trying to get to the bottom of every small detail. The disciples didn't really understand what the transfiguration was about. And the modern reader, the modern reader might look at this and wonder if there was more to it. It shows Jesus as being great. Is there more to it? So today I thought I would offer a few suggestions about the purpose, the purpose of the uh, transfiguration. Well, the first thing, the transfiguration was about the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. As well as the change in Jesus' appearance, there was this cloud. And clouds are frequently associated with the with the presence and the power of God. We came across a few references you may remember in Revelation again. And and here today God was making his presence known as he endorses these bold claims of this man Jesus. He endorses him. And so God makes this announcement and we we heard something similar at Jesus' baptism. That was a quite a few weeks ago, wasn't it, that, that, that we spoke about it. Well, the details might be a little bit different, but the meaning is the same. God is making it clear. This man is his beloved son and the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So he, he, he therefore directs his hearers to listen to Jesus to accept that his teaching is from heaven itself. And importantly, this endorsement from God was about Jesus only. Jesus only. He doesn't mention Moses. He doesn't mention Elijah. Despite them being such important figures in the history of Israel, he identifies Jesus as the Son of God and no one else. It's commonly believed Moses and Elijah here represent the law 
and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah being the representative of the, of the, of the prophets. Uh, this is something I used to believe too. Well, I mean, Jesus is is the one spoken of in the Lord of Moses and in the sayings of the prophets. And Elijah, of course, was was a member of that class of prophets. But it's unlikely this is what we're to conclude from the appearance of these individuals. The law came by Moses, yes, but he was also a prophet. So that confuses things a bit. Listen to this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18. I will raise them up, this is God speaking, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. That's interesting. So it's saying really, it's it's telling us really that Moses was classed as a, as a prophet as well. And Elijah, well, okay, was Elijah the the the, the main uh, representative of the prophets? Well, he, he, the trouble with that is he, he also had something to do with Sinai. So again, that, that confuses the idea a bit. So um, you'll see that in uh, First Kings chapter 19. There was a lot going on, wasn't there, with Elijah? And it says in this point he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that food, that meat, 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. And Mount Horeb was another name for Sinai. So in a few moments we're going to have a look at uh, the most likely reason that those two in particular were chosen to be at this this, uh, event. When uh, Peter... When Peter saw those two, he made this strange suggestion. He offers the services of himself and the other two disciples in building little homes, little huts or something, or just little places to live for these three people, Elijah, Moses and Jesus. And one of the problems with this suggestion is that it it implies that there is an equality, there's an equality between Moses, Elijah and Jesus, which I suppose is what Muslims believe. Jesus was 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 just a prophet. As as followers of Jesus Christ, you, you and I, we 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 need to understand the superiority of Jesus compared to all others. These two witnesses were there one minute and then they disappeared. Their work was done. The disciples were left with Jesus only. So no matter how highly they regarded those great men of old, Jesus was now God's authorised ruler and spokesman. He alone is to receive all the honour and glory. And friends, uh, you and I can contribute to that, that given of that honour the way we esteem Jesus in in our hearts. So the transfiguration was about the glory of Christ and it was also about the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. You might remember last week, and 
by all means, ha have another look at uh, verse 1 if it helps. You might remember that our reading finished on verse 1 of this chapter. Now, the, the Bible, when it was given originally, had no chapters and no verses. How they found things they wanted to... I, I, I don't know. How they found stuff without references, I don't know. But um, they tried all different ways to reference the Bible, splitting it up into sections. But we have it now with chapters and verses. And I thought it was interesting that... It's interesting that the, the people... Uh, not sure who, who who it was. I think it was some cardinal or something, some medieval cardinal. He, he gives us the roughly what we what we have today. And it's interesting that they chose to put this mention of um, this statement of Jesus at the beginning of a brand new chapter uh, about the coming of his kingdom. And so it's led some people to to it's led some people to believe that. That was a prediction of the kingdom of God coming with power in the in the transfiguration itself. Now, I'd say the transfiguration was not not the whole picture. It's it, it's it's in it, but it's an important part of it. If you think of the transfiguration as one link in a chain of occurrences that was to manifest the kingdom of God to this world. So the disciples are truly witnessing the the coming of the kingdom. It's fair to say. Now I said a moment ago we'd look at the probable reason these two figures in particular were chosen, Moses and Elijah, uh, to make an appearance. Well, it's no coincidence that those two Old Testament characters are associated with the coming of the Messianic Age. The Age of the Kingdom. The Age of the Gospel of the Kingdom. So this hope of the Messiah was at the heart of the Jewish religion. At the very, very end of, of our Old Testaments, we hear the words of Malachi. And in ch ch the last chapter of the last book, towards the end of that chapter. Remember ye the Lord of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, <clears throat> I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now the disciples, because they were Jews, they would appreciate the importance of these two Old Testament figures. So I, I think they they thought this was a sign of the end, that the end, the end had come. Well, the only thing this was the end of was the Jews' corrupt religion. But it was the start of something. It was the start of something big. God was introducing a new and better covenant promise to this world it's a promise that all who make their way to the feet of Jesus Christ in repentance would receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life salvation by the grace of God alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone it was to be preached now throughout the whole world 
So now the favour of God once restricted to this very small geographical area in the Middle East was about to go global. No nation, no people group, no language would remain unaffected by the spread of this powerful uh, gospel message. If you're interested in or fascinated by outer space like I am, you may have seen some video footage from the International Space Station. Uh, you can see that on YouTube if you want. And I thought, we're very privileged, aren't we, when you think about it? It's only in the past... Uh, it's only in the past, say, um, uh, say 100 years or less, that man has been able to, to go up in, in a plane and look down above the clouds on the earth. And it's only in the last sort of 50 years that, that um, man has been able to go up and view the whole planet from, from space. I mean, today, any any rational individual who sees that must marvel at the beauty of the planet and also the brilliance of its designer. But sadly, of course, many many won't. It's fascinating to watch footage uh, of the of the, the the planet as each area <clears throat> enters the the shadow of night time. So as the Earth rotates. You can see, you can see the sort of um, you can see the the, the the sunlit areas gradually uh, enter the enter nighttime, enter that shadow, and and suddenly you you see all these light all these lights get switched on, and so you think about it, it's um, within a short space of time when the sun's going down, all the lights get put on in homes and factories, and um, and the street lights come on. And and so you get this rapid um, appearance of uh, lights coming on, and I, I was thinking about that because I thought about the I thought about Jesus's uh, bright you know Jesus's bright countenance here, and I thought that's like a it's like a light that's about to break out all over the world, and and it's as if each new each new convert is sort of lit up by the light of Jesus and so uh, th these these lights come on all the time there's one in South America and then one appears in Asia and Australia and Europe and so on and they're coming on all over the world every day just like little beacons these conversions are like little beacons on the top of a hill showing to all the gradual extension of the marvellous kingdom of God. Certainly the transfiguration was about God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And the transfiguration was also about the suffering of Christ, the suffering of Christ. I find it difficult to get to the, the bottom of what the disciples were, were thinking. We, we, we can't read their minds and we can only look at, at clues but I imagine it was mostly a, a state of confusion they were in. They knew about the promise of Elijah's return before Messiah came. Well, they'd just seen him. And now he's vanished. As quickly as he's appeared, he's vanished again. What's, what's going on? Well, Jesus had told them ages ago, the coming of Elijah referred to John the Baptist. And he says it again now. 
if you have a look at verses 12 and 13, I I read them and I, I thought that they're not particularly easy to understand. So in a, if I can put this in a nutshell, Jesus is saying that Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist. And he, Jesus, will likewise suffer at the hands of the authorities. If you if you remember the episode in the Old Testament with Elijah, at one point, Jezebel makes threats about Elijah. She says, I'm going to have him killed. He won't last another 24 hours. Well, that didn't happen. And so we, we should instead look for a fulfilment of that in the life of John the Baptist. There's an interesting parallel between the two. John was killed at the instigation of some wicked uh, woman who um, manipulated a, a weak-minded king. And so Elijah had been persecuted by a woman uh, who was also manipulating uh, the king. You remember a few weeks ago we saw Herodias. Um, she was... Um, she, she was the, the wife of um, Herod and Herodias was the cause of John the Baptist's death and a guy called Sweet who's a, a Bible commentator says this, I like this he says John the Baptist found his Jezebel in Herodias he found his Jezebel in Herodias so Jesus uses the fate of John the Baptist to show how he would likewise suffer. The disciples, being Jews, they would have had their own ideas, their own fantasies about this, the coming of Elijah and then the Messiah. And Jesus here just destroys uh, any such uh, misconceptions. How many times does Jesus have to say, suffering is at the very core of his purpose in their world? I don't want to criticise Peter for what he said. Now, there's a fair few mistakes recorded in Scripture about Peter, things that he did wrong. And and admit, sometimes I just want to say to, I just want to shout out to Peter down the centuries. I want to shout out, can you please just not speak? I know it's a strange concept to you, but can you just try speaking for, for, for one minute, please? just uh, but you know the the fact is P Peter and the others they just woke up they'd been asleep it says that in, a, in another gospel and then he's got this shock of this 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 scene in front of him and so no doubt that contributed to his confusion and it says it says they were all scared uh, as, as you would be but I'd say when we witness uh, the failings of Peter and, and others, I think it's it's healthier for us to assume we'd have done no better if we'd have been there. We'd have done no better in the garden, and we'd have done no better had we been in Peter's shoes. And I would say this, there, there may have been some rational thinking behind Peter's suggestion, because 
the Hebrews had a special uh, week of remembrance called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you've heard of the Feast of the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of um, this and that and the other. There's about seven different feasts. And we have this Feast of Tabernacles and the people, the Hebrews, would they would live in temporary shelters, uh, just like tents, really. And it was so they could remind themselves of that great exodus from Egypt all those centuries ago because they lived like nomads in the wilderness before they settled in Canaan. Um, Some Jews today will try to carry on this uh, tradition. Um, So um, my my friend lived in an area where there was lots of Jews living and he said, you know, once a year you'd see them. You'd see them building little makeshift shelters in the back garden out of branches and things and sitting in them (laughs) and they're going to all this effort and they, they just they don't understand they go through these rituals and they don't understand that it's all about a person and they miss the most important thing that all these things all these feasts they're all about Jesus and they just they, they miss that they don't get it so um, it, some people think that it's possible that um, this transfiguration took place at the time of year when the Feast of Tabernacles was being celebrated. Now, I don't know about that, and um, I can't make my mind up about that. But in any case, there is an Old Testament prophecy which links the coming of the kingdom with the Feast of Tabernacles. So is this what was in Peter's mind? Um, in um, This is in Zechariah. Zechariah, sorry, uh, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. So maybe Peter just thought it was appropriate to suggest building three tabernacles as part of the fulfilment of this uh, prophecy. But whether he realised it or not, Peter was again undermining God's purpose. This wasn't the time to be acting out end time events when Jesus had not yet suffered. Jesus had made it clear to him and the others that his suffering and death must come before his glorification. And so Peter had no excuse for making the suggestion he did. One of the prime purposes for the transfiguration was to get the disciples used to the idea of the cross. The offence that they felt, the disappointment they heard when they felt when, when they heard Jesus talk about the necessity of his suffering and death, that needed to be gone, that needed to be eradicated. The offence of the cross needed to be removed from their thinking and the transfiguration, therefore, I think, was to so impress them with the reality of his glory that their faith wouldn't be undermined when they witnessed his coming uh, suffering and death.
well, I've missed a slide there, but um, we talked about the suffering of Christ and also the transfiguration was about the resurrection of Christ. It was about the resurrection, about his resurrection. Now, we remember a moment ago we said Jesus had said to the disciples, keep quiet about this until I've been raised from the dead and then they could broadcast all they want about him. The disciples would have known what the word resurrection meant, the concept of someone coming alive again. The problem is their religion used it exclusively for the resurrection of all the saints at the end of time. So for Jesus to be resurrected means he would have to die and this is what's causing them this is what's causing them uh, trouble and confusion. What they perhaps should have seen in this transfiguration was a token of the coming resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. They needed to grasp the reality really that although their master was going to die, it would be a voluntary act and he would again rise from the dead. And let's not forget this as well, folks, that the resurrection of Jesus was, was this great example of this occurrence that would affect the whole of mankind. Because when Jesus returns, there'll be a resurrection, a resurrection of all the dead people who've ever lived, all of them. Throughout the whole of history, all will be resurrected. And for some, it will be so that they can be judged and damned, sadly. And for others, it will be so they can be judged and given immortality. Immortality. But often when the believer talks about the resurrection of the body, more often what they mean is the resurrection of the just, the raising of God's elect. The Bible describes the, the, our resurrection as our great hope. The great hope. Now the idea of a resurrection wasn't unknown in the Old Testament. But it wasn't really very well formed you know, as a doctrine. Uh, later on you may have, you, you may have uh, read about the Sadducees. That they, they, they just denied the idea of a resurrection. They say when you're dead, you're dead. You're not going to come alive again. They insisted so when you recall the feast of the tabernacles it was it was to remind the people about their temporary existence wasn't it their temporary existence in the wilderness so it might be easy for us then to understand their connection with our existence in the wilderness of this world the apostle paul he describes the um the resurrection as the gift of a new tabernacle. The resurrection is when we get uh, new bodies to live in. And so, friends, we should never forget that the state we're in now is a temporary one and we can enjoy life. We can even take reasonable steps to preserve it. But don't do that to the extent that you forget that you and I don't belong here. We, we, we don't belong here we, we're here to do a particular job and then go and when we enter our glorious new environment in the future then we'll say like Peter did in our account we'll be able to say Lord it's good to be here it's good to be here
So my final point is that the transfiguration was about Jesus only. Jesus only. The transfiguration itself ended quite abruptly, didn't it? The brightness went, the clouds had gone, the witnesses had disappeared. And and in a way, the, the father had gone, if you like. He'd stepped back, having presented his son as the one who would have the preeminence. As I read this passage, in the, in the whole passage that we've read today, it's those two words that really stood out for me most spectacularly, Jesus only. Jesus only. The participants had gone. The visual spectacle had ended and the disciples saw no one but Jesus only. And we also hope, don't we, that, that we see Jesus only. We, but, Well, by this what I mean is he's the one to be in all our preaching and all our uh, witnessing to others. And the apostle makes this clear in uh, 1 Corinthians when Paul's writing to the church at uh, Corinth. He says to them, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the that's the topic he wanted to focus on above all else. And and tied in with the cross is Jesus' resurrection. And the fact that he died and rose again um well that, that's really at the center the center of our preaching and our evangelism it's it's um, that he died and rose again uh, came across this uh, book haven't read it but the the author hertado or hertado uh, he said this interesting thing he said intelligent talk of the glory of jesus cannot be done apart from emphasis upon his death and resurrection and that any christian preaching and devotion that is not centred on the meaning of these events, is shallow and confused. Interesting. When, when, I, when I preach, folks, this is my aim. I, I, I'll, I'll preach from... I have preached from, from uh, different books in the Bible, and maybe sometimes I'll, I'll focus on just a topic, but I endeavour every week to place Jesus at the heart of the message and since I'm unable to come up with good enough language to really give Jesus the honour and glory that is due to him I go and pray I go and pray to the Father in heaven for help I pray for you I ask God I ask God to see to it that when I finish speaking in the pulpit or online, when I've sp- finished speaking each week, that you people in your hearts might see none but Jesus only. As you as you listen to me, I want, if you like, I want me to decrease and I want Jesus Christ to increase in the honour and the praise coming from your heart. Jesus only. I heard a preacher, I can't remember who it was, it was a long time ago, a preacher was talking about another Christian, speaking very highly of him, and at one point he said, and he had he was a real Trinitarian man, really believed in a Trinity, a real one, not one of these people who go around wearing badges saying Jesus only. <laughs> and so I thought that preacher seems to think that the phrase Jesus only 
um, somehow undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. But I'd say this, that not only is the, is the phrase in the Bible in front of us, but the rest of the scriptures um, really present Jesus, uh, Jesus's role within the Trinity as as the front man, if you like, the the one who's out there, the one who's on centre stage, if you like. And you know, we it's been arranged that way by God, and we you know we we trust in uh, our faith is in Jesus Christ. We don't put we're trusting in the death of Jesus Christ we don't trust in the death of the Father you see um, it, the Bible says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ we're not joint heirs with the Holy Spirit if you see what I mean so there's nothing wrong with this phrase Jesus only it's a great motto Jesus only Jesus features in the Old Testament and uh, he's described as being uh, all light it says in um, Psalm 104 Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment Who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain Now you might say that's about God the Father Well, it talks about stretching out the heavens uh, Which is an act of creation And Jesus was described as the creator So he's the one uh, Not just God in general But Jesus in particular Is described as being covered in light He is light and I was thinking about again about Jesus and this uh, this issue of um, Jesus being light uh, in the Transfiguration, and I thought about a prism, a prism, probably because I I was looking at a, an old album cover with a prism on the front recently, and 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 so. I, You'll know then that a prism, uh, the, the, the light comes into it and then it's broken up into its separate colours. Then you can see all the colours that make up white light. And, and I thought, it reminds me of Jesus. He, it's like he's the white light and then he, he sort of, um, as he adds people to his great big congregation, all these different colours are produced. And as he builds his church, we see different colours of character emerge in people. We have we have our own identities, good and bad, but our aim is to become like him. We don't want to keep this mixture of a little bit of Christ-likeness and a lot of foolishness. We want to become more like him, don't we? And it says here in uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 says and verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the word is transfigured. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're to be transfigured. Transfigured. Not in the visual way that we looked at today, but inwardly. We're to change our habits, our language, our affections, our thinking, all to be more like the Saviour. So may the, may the Lord bless you, as you, even as you listen right now, that you might be left with a high view of the Redeemer to come away uh, from this online meeting today thinking of Jesus only. Amen. <laughs>